You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas that are shaping our patterns of consumption for the better. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Ian Montgomery, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Stefan. I, I love your podcast, love listening to it. So it's great to be having this conversation with you. You're one of my favorite people to work with. You run a company called Guacamole Airplane, which, by the way, I've never asked you what that <laughs> what the name is from. But before we get to that, you know, for, for our listeners, you've been involved in all kinds of different sustainability, like blog posts, projects that we've worked on at Lumi, probably most notably the sustainability properties framework, which has been really successful for a lot of brands. I know a lot of companies who have kind of run with that internally to try and figure out how they want to prioritize their sustainability efforts, especially when it comes to packaging. But I think that framework has been really helpful for all kinds of other sustainability decisions. And people can find that if they go to lumi.com slash properties. You did, I don't know, (laughs) months of research on like every different detail. and, And there were lots of interesting questions along the way. And then you've also worked on some like r- pretty big deep dives, like the the one that we did on ink, uh, soy ink, what is the sustainability of various types of pigments. But then you also run <laughs> your own agency. And so you're just one of my favorite people to talk to about sustainability and packaging. And I want to dig into some of these different topics. First of all, how did you get interested in packaging? Like you, you've gone right into the deep end of like some really interesting stuff. But what got you first curious about it? Oh, well, thanks for the kind words. I've always really uh, loved working with you and, and Lumi. My introduction to packaging, similar to yourself, came through sustainability first. I, I studied environmental science in college, and towards the end of that program, was doing a project, kind of a environmental audit of the wine industry, looking at a few different wineries in Northern California, and originally approached that project. I thought it was going to be a soil science project, looking at different agricultural techniques, But as we were looking at the wineries, we were very surprised to find probably some of the most meaningful impact we could have on sustainability wasn't through soil science, but was through packaging. Mm. Um, Most of these wineries were using kind of very heavy glass bottles with big thumbs to try to elevate the product. And it was so fascinating. We, you know, looked at LCAs of different thicknesses of glass, comparing them to aseptic cartons, tetra packs versus aluminum versus plastic bottles. And that was probably where I first got excited about the potential of design, not just pure research science to, to have a, like a big sustainability impact. And then after college, I, I worked as a designer for a series of different like direct to consumer brands, like doing graphics and, and also quite a bit of packaging and, um, Slowly got more and more focused on packaging. Uh, was lucky to go to graduate school at Pratt in New York, and they have a packaging design program. And it's uniquely free and, and relatively unstructured. It's a two-year program, and you spend a year and a half on your thesis. And I used that time to really lay the... I knew I wanted to set up my own studio focused on sustainability and packaging and, and use that time to really lay the philosophical groundwork and sort of pick up the design skills I'd, I'd need to do that. And it was so wonderful. It was so fun. Uh, they had great studios and labs and prototyped with all sorts of different new sustainable materials that are hitting the market now, mushroom-based foams and algae bioplastics and 
at a great metal shop and I, I built a series of kind of what you'd see in a plastic factory, but on a small scale, an injection molder and a shredder and um, was running recycled plastic through them and also bioplastics through them. And, and then also like picked up a bunch of like great skills around uh, 3D modeling and just did thousands of die lines. It was kind of a funny program. I felt like I was like a, a spy from another world. I remember being in a <laughs> plastics class and learning about thermoforming, learning about blow molding and doing it all by hand on their machines and thinking like, oh, this is such a great skill set. I can't wait to apply this <laughs> philosophy yeah. in a world where, you know, I'm thinking about it from a totally different way. You know, I'm, I'm thinking sustainability is, is mm. you know, coming first. So um, that's sort of how I, I narrowed into packaging. Yeah, I had a similar experience to that last one when I was studying industrial design and I had <laughs> I had gone to school for biology and zoology and then switched over to industrial design. And I think both give you this kind of lens on the world where you're walking around and the industrial design part of my brain is like, how was this thing made? Was it injection molded? Was it, you know, <laughs> milled? Like you, you, it's like being Neo in the matrix and you're like, oh, I can see everything now. Like, yeah, I can see how things are made. And then the biology side is like, these are different kinds of plants and animals. And like, there's something fascinating about kind of having that lens on the world where maybe sometimes it's hard to unsee things, but it it, it does give you a different perspective on like things that other people might just take for granted, I guess. I could totally relate um, with that lens of an environmental background, sometimes you can almost know too much and you can become too paranoid with the footprint of your decisions in your day-to-day -day life or, or in a design project. And uh, it takes a lot to become comfortable with the gray areas and trade-offs that, that go into these design decisions. And um, yeah, I can, I can just totally relate to having that different lens while going into de to design school. Trade-offs is the perfect term for everything that has to do with sustainability because you're always you're always making a decision between something that's like <laughs> less worse than something else in some way. And that's something that's really fascinating to me going into Guacamole Airplane, your agency, which, by the way, for everyone who's listening, if you want to work with Ian and, and Guacamole Airplane, they're now in the Lumi Experts directory. If you go to lumi.com slash experts, you can find them there. So I hope that you get lots of new <laughs> clients that come to you with to hear about your expertise. But let's go a little bit into that. First of all, I got to ask where the, that name comes from. The name came from an old Ed Ruscha painting that was a little different. Guacamole Airlines, I think, was the painting. And like the image of, of something organic making... Uh, making up something modern and, and functional like an airplane. And it was a little bit tongue in cheek, but um, felt that was the right metaphor for the type of work we were doing. And, and also felt that it would be a good litmus test for clients. If they were cool with working with a studio with such a, a strange name, they'd probably be open to really pushing the limits with their design solutions. Well, and whenever I mention it to someone, it always provokes some kind of smile. So it's working on some level. I think that people get a kick out of it. That's great to hear. We've, we've had a couple people tell us we should change our names, but we've, we've stuck really? with it. Really? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Airplane. Uh, I don't know why, like the two things that come to, to my brain is like, there's this great weird video called, what is it called? It's like, I think it won an Oscar for a short film. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> no, this sounds amazing. I got to check this out. <laughs> it's like a stop motion, fresh guacamole. Oh, I, Cannot wait to pull that up. I think it was an Oscar-nominated short film. 
So half of my brain is going to fresh guacamole, which we'll put a, a link in the YouTube <laughs> to the YouTube video in the show notes. And the other part is on the airplane side, like one of the first things that really got me into industrial design was like the work of Charles and Ray Eames. And they were kind of like came out of World War II with plywood materials and like really rethinking like how to take some of the what what was learned during World War II around shaping plywood and kind of brought it to the world of furniture. And I don't know, there's something there. So those are my <laughs> like free association off of your name that I, I think of. That's the perfect free association. We reference the Eameses a lot in our design philosophy. Exactly what you're saying. They're using these modern aerospace materials. And they're also in Santa Monica Canyon, totally inspired by the boat building and, and surfboard building industry that was nascent there at the time. And you know, through a, a really like just fascinating interplay with some of those boat builders and surfboard shapers, they were able to push fiberglass to new limits. And, and uh, looking back on that era and, and of design and thinking about, okay, how can we think about this new explosion of, of biomaterials that are, are, you know, coming to life now and, and pushing them to their formal and, and functional potential? It, it's so fun to, uh, to sort of channel that old thinking. Well, on the last episode, um, we talked to one of the founders of this company called On Running, and they are making the shoe out of like castor bean um, oil, I guess. Like it's a polyamide, like nylon, I guess, that is made from castor bean. And I feel like you're always on the edge of, like you said, there's all of these materials, whether it's like um, sugar cane or mushroom or, and you've been actually experimenting with turning some of those raw materials into something that could be packaging. Where did that come from? Is, it, is that purely experimental or are you actually thinking about, you know, turning some of those things into like production ready processes? We're not a manufacturer and we're never going to do a, a large scale run of anything, but we, most of our experimenting is looking at what kind of emerging material science or small scale manufacturers are out there that are doing interesting work with biomaterials and, either through them or on our own, getting samples of the materials and really exploring them for their design potential on our own. Um, we feel that it's important to not just know about these materials, but be have a familiarity with them and be able to prototype with them if we really want to incorporate them into our designs. Um, and uh, yeah, so we've, we've tooled up our studio to really be able to do quite a bit of prototyping, um, prototype with molded pulp, with all sorts of, you know, different paper pulps that are out there you can prototype with seaweed and different recycled plastics and really love that, that hands-on approach to educating ourselves about materials. It's such a challenge because I think anyone who is passionate about sustainability wants to be able to use these materials. It's so exciting to think that we could be making more things out of renewable materials. But, you know, it, it, there's this chicken or egg problem, which is that, uh, you know, unless they hit some sort of scale, it's really hard to be able to put them in production. Either the processes are not there yet or the supply chain in general is not there yet. And you can't get it there unless you actually start using it. So is there a way, how do you kind of help clients, I guess, who are thinking about these things navigate the, those types of decisions? I fully agree. And no big brand wants to take the investment or leap of faith to be um, 
the first one to work with one of these new manufacturers and, and take their technology to scale. A big exception to that is the work of, of Dell Computers and their packaging team led by Oliver Campbell. More than any other brand that I'm aware of, they look to what's out there with materials and they'll, um, whether it was, you know, in 2011, working with Ecovative to pack their servers in mycelium, they'll, they'll find, or a, a few different others, they'll find these kind of interesting materials out there and really use their purchasing power to serve as a partner for these small, smaller or new manufacturers and bring them up to scale. And uh, they really just do, do the world a great service with, with these projects. When cl- when you have clients who come to you and want to or have heard of your experiments or have seen some of the stuff that you've been working with, what's that conversation like? Do you do you have to like talk them off of it or how do you figure that out? It can go a couple different ways depending on scale. It's up to us to be educated. If a client does get excited about a, a new material for us to have a good understanding of any manufacturing concerns that will come up, what the tooling cost will be if there is one, and and um, what the product performance will be. We have a big wall in our studio of, of material samples that serves as a material library. And we had one instance where a client came in and got really excited about this seaweed film. And mm. it works. It performs similarly to like a polyethylene plastic in that you can heat seal it. It, it you know, works with traditional plastic equipment. So we were able to, to source enough of it and design a system that you know didn't have any waste in, in manufacturing and he could do a run of packaging his seeds with that seaweed and uh you know having the excitement come from him come from the client having him get so excited about feeling a sample was was really a, a great starting point for us to move forward but you know in in, in other cases we'll usually start our projects with a a big box of, of material samples and some information about the sustainability of each of them. And you almost feel like a bearer of bad news at, at times with that box. Cause you're like, okay, well this, the unit cost of this will be this. And you know, it's going to be a little bit more expensive than some of the traditional techniques you're used to. Well, sometimes the, the innovative thing can also be a boring thing. Like, you know, if, if something has been packaged for a long time in some sort of like plastic clamshell, you know, you could switch to paper or corrugate. I think I remember seeing you like working on some projects for electronics and thinking somewhere in that direction. Like there there are some things that you can do that might be different from how the industry is doing it and, and whatever that industry might be that moves it in a much more sustainable direction, uh, but still feels innovative to that kind of product. Absolutely. There's, you know, so much you can do with paper and love working with folding cartons the the project you're referencing um originally the the first version of it before we came on had been packaged in uh, a series of plastic foams and, and the brand wanted to step away from that so we really pushed the boundaries with die cut paper inserts and and what we could design and, and what we could feasibly manufacture in order to nest a series of pretty complex shapes in in nothing but paper and that sort of origami art form of, of folding paper you're right it can be so delightful and just so so fun when it works out you have a lot of different kind of skill sets between actually kind of the the design the graphic design and the branding the material science the packaging engineering to just the sustainable you know uh, sustainability knowledge when clients come to you, like how are you helping them navigate 
across all of those disciplines or do they usually know what to ask you about even when they're getting started? Most of our clients come to us because of they want help with packaging and they're excited about our focus on sustainability. We'll structure projects in, in one of two ways. Um, the first one is just a traditional structural packaging design project where you know we, we start out with a really strong research phase around sustainability. And our, our goal for the design project is a manufacturing-ready package that, that has the smallest impact it can. The other half of our work is when we're looking just beyond, you know, one or a few packages, we'll structure projects as sustainability consulting. And there we're really trying to build, you know, well-researched and actionable sustainability strategies that companies can incorporate uh, into all of their products. Do you ever find yourself kind of like in a greenwashing type of conversation where you're either having to help a, a client who's kind of like heard some bit of information that was wrong and like is bringing that to the table or they're kind of like pushing you in a direction that you don't feel comfortable? Like, how do you navigate that part? That comes up quite a bit. I'd almost say that comes up most with the concept of compostability. Um, mm. There is a good amount of greenwashing in the compostable packaging world as an idea there's sort of an ecological poetry to composting but oftentimes the you know the reality isn't as poetic you know if someone came to us really excited about composting we're not going to hold back we're we're going to be really honest about the flaws in that strategy the, the first one is going to be access something like five percent of the u.s population has access to curbside compost pickup and of that less than half of that are going to accept the compostable bioplastics that we're familiar with with the bpi logo so the infrastructure just isn't there like you know it's you're looking at something like two percent of people have access to it where it's like more than 70 percent for paper or aluminum for curbside pickup the second concern is that these compostable films aren't really valuable for composters. They want food waste that's nutrient-rich or, or garden waste and wood chips that are, that are carbon-rich. Packaging films don't really bring anything. They're, they're kind of a hindrance. If a composter's a business, there's really no incentive for them to take these films. And then the third is a, like a design problem. A lot of time, especially with like the hard PLAs, but, but even the films, they can be designed with their tactility or form to look like conventional plastics. And it's no surprise that they end up being tossed in with recycling where they're a contaminant or, or thrown in the trash. And if they end up in a landfill in an anaerobic environment, it's going to decompose and release methane, which is not good. But then they, there are use cases where compostable packaging is, is totally appropriate. Like if it's serving as a vessel for food waste, that's going to bring food waste into the composting stream. That's great. Or if it's a film that is more compostable than just a PLA, it, it meets some of the European home compostability standards and can easily break down in a backyard pile or beyond that is even water soluble, that 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 can be perfect too in, in the right application. So we don't hold back with pointing out the flaws in someone's strategy, but we don't end that conversation on like a negative note. Like we'll maybe shift it around and say, if you do want to go compostable, this is best practice and this is how you do it. This is how we would do it, which would be, you know, maybe a series of other design strategies that, that we would... Um, or sustainability strategies that, that we would prioritize. So that that conversation can come up when people have preconceived notions around sustainability. And, and those are always interesting discussions and are, are never painful. We don't feel like we've ever been put in a situation where we're forced to greenwash an idea. There were a couple of projects early on um, that were more small scale where we didn't really have the 
purchasing power in terms of units to step out of like stock options and in conventional plastics. And that's always tough, but you know, that's, that's the reality of, of uh, working with smaller businesses, particularly as we're getting started. Yeah. The compostability point, I think is a, it's a really good example. And I think part of it stems from the fact that some of these new film materials have become uh, much more accessible just in the past few years. And I, I totally agree with your conclusion in terms of where it makes the most sense being mostly on the food side, but there's still um, so many companies, especially in the fashion area, that are struggling to figure out how to replace the the infamous poly mailer. And so that has like looked like an interesting solution to many companies, but I, I totally agree with you with on the flaws. And for the most part, I personally don't really recommend it for that application but we don't have a better solution. I mean, paper mailers are out there. We've seen some of the challenges it has. Like, wh- where does your brain go with that problem these days? Where do you think solutions might come? That's a great one. Um, a lot of the, the kind of design constraints of Polybag, in our projects at least, you need to be able to scan a barcode through it. So that's rendered a lot of the paper options obsolete. And even with paper, you're going to have a, a higher carbon footprint, higher water use than a thin plastic there is a, a type of paper that's translucent enough to scan barcodes through glassine, and, and that's an interesting thing to look at for poly bags, but you have to be comfortable with that trade-off in, in carbon footprint and water use. I think as like we look towards the future, some of the films that are being developed that are designed to sequester carbon in their manufacturing are interesting, and, and thinking about you know carbon sequestration is something that isn't just minimizing the impact of something that actually creating a, a net positive. That's, that, that's an interesting one there. And then back to just like plastics, there are some really cool pilot MRFs in the U S that are starting to accept flexible films. That's the problem with these soft plastics. You get it. You got to define MRFs for people. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um, a MRF is a material recovery facility. It's uh you know, after we put something in the trash, it'll go to the dump where it's sorted or sent to a MRF. Or if you have a private waste system, a MRF will, will probably just pick it up. And so these facilities traditionally haven't been able to take plastic bags and, you know, the, the plastics that are like a poly bag for a piece of clothing just because they get jammed in the sorting equipment. The sorting equipment was really only designed to handle hard plastics. But recently, there's there's been some innovation in, in sorting, and and that could be huge if if that scales. So, yeah, some of, some of the carbon sequestering options and are exciting, and and uh, inf- infrastructure change around flexible film collection is interesting too. Yeah, and that notion of how you should prioritize these different strategies was really at the core of developing the sustainability properties framework that we worked together on. And so just to give people some idea of what it is, it's basically trying to give a standardized definition for some of these terms like compostable, which we actually ended up breaking down into home compostable versus industrially compostable. And some of the terms like I think biodegradable is a really good example. The definition, you know, is is a little iffy and maybe it, it varies from one country to the next. So how do you even have a conversation about what you're trying to optimize if the definition is not clear. Um, So a big part of it was just trying to take these 20 or so terms and define them 
we were going to be okay with the fact that this was going to be the Lumi definition. And so if it doesn't match up perfectly with every other definition, that that's okay. But hopefully it's enough for someone to use to make a decision on, on a particular material or type of product. And then what data can we go find? Like you brought up that data point about the fact that only 5% of people have access to compost um, facilities nearby or compost programs in their city. That, you know, might be influential in someone's decision about whether compostability ranks near the top of what they're trying to focus on. And then we tried to color code those and break them down into what part of the life cycle are you talking about? Are you, you know, the design, the manufacturing, the logistics, the recovery process. Been a really fun project and we've kind of improved on it by adding new properties over time. I guess since you did so much research on that, I'm curious not to put you on, on the spot, but if you remember some things that you kind of discovered through that process or um, some data points and things that were meaningful and that ended up kind of shaping some decisions that you made later down the road. Absolutely. I that project was so fun to work on with you because it was grappling with with such big questions and uh, the vision you and your team had for it as a tool that could help educate brands as they're thinking through their sustainability strategies and you know ultimately influence manufacturing was just so so great. I think back to a couple conversations. Um, I think right at the beginning, you and I and Caitlin were talking about how much carbon footprint should come into it. And I, I could be mis- misremembering, you know, parts of this conversation. But as I recall, we were debating, should this whole thing center around carbon footprint? Mm. And, and how do we want to, or or if not, how do we want to step outside of it? And I, if I recall correctly, the answer we arrived on was carbon footprint should be very important. And that should be something that, you know, comes up in more than just one property. It should come up in manufacturing. It should come up in, you know, shipping and design and, and, that, and that sort of thing. But we also need to have enough other considerations out there that give up like a whole look at packaging and, and to give new materials that are coming to market the opportunity to prove themselves on a conceptual level and not have to like compete with the economies of scale that plastic has. Like plastic is a thin plastic film is going to have such a low carbon footprint because of the infrastructure and how efficient, you know, our, our global petrochemical industry is. And, uh, you know, really creating a framework that allowed us to look just beyond plastic and, and give each material its due was interesting. And, and also be honest about carbon footprint. Another one that comes to mind was, I think you and I went back and forth a lot on renewable energy. If we should have nuclear power be included as renewable, I'm a big fan of nuclear for its um, low, that's just, you know, a a carbon-free energy source, but it's not without its problems. And uh, if I recall that the answer we arrived at was just to, you know, make note of nuclear power in that definition, but (laughs) not include it as a renewable energy source. Yeah, it's funny that you brought that one up because I was thinking about the same one and um, <laughs> I had to remind myself what was our what was our decision ultimately. But then, um, yeah, I looked it up and we just we just sort of called it out as as its own separate thing and left it up to the reader whether they wanted to to consider it renewable or not. But that it was worth mentioning. And in fact, as we are in the process of opening up the our, our supplier search engine, one of the big areas that we're working on is actually how do we help people navigate renewable energy on a facility level? 
so nuclear doesn't come up as much <laughs> in the U.S., I guess, just because it's not that present. And if it is, it's more like at the grid level. Um, but there are a lot of manufacturers now who are installing solar panels, and it, it could be a factor in someone's decision. Like, I am just waiting for the day where, you know, quotes are coming back from uh, manufacturers on Lumi, and, uh, you know, a brand is going to look at two very equivalent quotes, and, you know, one of them, they, they both have very similar materials, price points, distance from the warehouse, et cetera. But one of them is got solar power. <laughs> and then that's the that's the thing that helps someone make that decision. And then we can actually tell the the supplier, hey, you know, you lost this bid because this other factory that won had solar power. And, and maybe that kind of in a gradual way helps people shift um, things in the right direction. So that was a really fun one to work on. I love that vision of the these kind of sustainability properties as a tool to encourage manufacturers to adopt more sustainable practices. And I, I think that's, a, you know, it, it might sound pie in the sky, but I think that's totally reasonable, especially with manufacturers being able to purchase renewable energy credits to offset their carbon footprint. I think it's it's totally possible and something we'll see more and more. In the second um, batch of, um, or maybe the third batch, I forget, of properties, we added all of the reusable, returnable, refillable ones. And that was another kind of interesting conversation because we really had to kind of choose the words that we wanted to use very intently um, and make a distinction between reusable, returnable, and refillable um, because sometimes they can be used kind of interchangeably. But we wanted to be able to separate them a little bit more. I don't know if like these things I really consider living um, documents and hopefully keep improving, especially because things are changing about the world, even as we write these things. But that's an area that I I think that we're going to see a lot of innovation in over the next, you know, coming decades. Is there anything you remember about that exploration? Yeah, that was fascinating, especially looking at LCAs and and finding the number at which it made sense to use a returnable system for for different materials. And obviously each use case is different, you know, for, for some materials, the use case was, you know, for like a woven polypropylene made from recycled plastic. A lot of times it just has to be used two or three times to have a smaller footprint than a piece of traditional packaging plastic. But if it was something like a cotton bag that could be hundreds, if not thousands, if you're bringing water footprint into it too. So yeah, that, that reusable one was was interesting, and we're we're I'm seeing more of those conversations come into our own work. And I think probably the last two or three products in the early prototyping phase, we've at the client's request have explored what a reusable bottle could look like, and um, that's that's so wonderful. That's just a big kind of thinking change that's gone around the world. Well, I think the reason why it's um, interesting at this point in time is just because. With e-commerce, I think that it opens up some new business models um, and reusable, refillable type of business models have, you know, this very intrinsic relationship between the packaging and how the product is sold. And we kind of go back to that idea of the milkman model where, you know, you're, you're, you're leaving these glass bottles and that glass bottle is an asset that the, that the company owns. And there's an incentive there for them to make something durable that they can refill. Um, but it comes with a certain like logistical burden that, you know, you have to clean them and it, it's a whole part of your operation now. But with e-commerce, I think that some companies are 
looking at that in a new way. A, a good example of that would be some of the clothing subscriptions that are out there that are thinking about like how they can make bags that can make round trips. Um, so there's some interesting things about how we we try to define those in the context of e-commerce where some new rules are being established there. Absolutely. And then sort of in, in tandem with that, uh, we were looking a lot at refillable models and as, as well and, and loved your mm. podcast episode with the founder of Blue Land sort of you know, going through yeah. a, a similar conversation. And as, as you start to think about designing water out of packaging and, and what percentage of packages are just water that are just being shipped around the country, it's that becomes like a, a whole another interesting um, design challenge where it's, okay, how could our refills not be full of water? And, and perhaps with that model, you don't have to set up such a, a wild infrastructure of collection and you don't have to sort of overbuy packaging to always have stuff in circulation, but you can still, you know, cut, cut down on your footprint. It's yeah. All of these, either a, a refill or, or a reuse model are such interesting trade-offs from a, from a business side of things too. Have you found that like explaining these things to your clients or to maybe end consumers or friends of yours has gotten easier? Do you, have you figured out uh, kind of a language in which we can explain these things to someone who's maybe not as like coming into it with as much expertise? I think I still run the risk of getting too excited and, and going too deep into things. I, I recently um, was taught a sustainable design class to a, a group of students at the University of San Francisco. They were graduating seniors with it, with a great design background, but not particularly a sustainability background. And they'd have to stop me in classes and be like, okay, re- rewind a couple steps. What are, what are the simple things here? But I, I do think that at the same time, like the average person is so much more educated on sustainability as it relates to their products and in a way that just wasn't a thing five years ago like people are now fluent in you know tier one or tier two emissions and expecting a level of environmental responsibility and social responsibility from their brands that's uh that's made this type of work that we're doing more more accepted and more mainstream um, another good example, I've seen a lot of stories just in mainstream publications about like the recycling crisis and what's been going on just since China has like banned recyclables, you know, three, four years ago. And and I think that has entered to some degree mainstream consciousness and is something that people talk about, uh, which is really interesting because I think it gives people a different lens on the concept of recycling and how brands are making decisions there. Absolutely. I think, yeah, that China's national sword policy was big. I think David Attenborough's uh, piece a few years ago was was huge, maybe for a different generation, uh, turning them on to the idea of ocean plastics. And um, also, it's, it seems like National Geographic has, I think they did a piece maybe two years ago that was really focused on plastic pollution. And yeah, there, there's just a lot of really great cultural pieces where this type of science communication is is really well done and and becoming more approachable and interesting to people. I struggle with that a lot because even people who are, you know, running companies, they want to do the right thing, but they're not (laughs) asking for a dissertation on this. They're asking for advice. And it's really hard for me to not answer like something like it depends or it's complicated, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but the answers are always so gray. It's hard to 
explain these things in a way that you can, I want to say things with some level of certainty, but it's really hard to do that. I can fully relate to that. And some, some good advice we got early on with um, setting up our design projects was in tandem with like articulating our design prompt and our design goals, always use the first couple of weeks of a project to arrive on a shared vision of success in terms of sustainability for a product. And oftentimes it'll just be, you know, a handful of sustainability properties from, from the Lumi website in, in order. And that can put us on, on the same page and, and give us a framework to make these gray area decisions with like a lot of times the, you know, the answer is still going to be, it depends. And uh, you have to be mindful of your time of like what black holes you, you go down in, in terms of research. But uh, yeah, I, I can relate. <laughs> yeah. It's like at, at one end of the spectrum, you know, it's, it's a very um, do this, don't do this. And you, and I think that there are certain things where you can, you can say that and be like 90% correct most of the time that this thing is better than that thing. But then it, it, if someone wants to know why, then it kind of unravels in this like a very complicated kind of series of decisions of one thing influencing another um, leading you to that point. And so, yeah, with the properties, Actually, like a a project that's been on the back burner since COVID um, hit was that we were going to turn it into a card game. I don't know if Caitlin told you about this, but we wanted to actually make it a game. I think she showed me a prototype. Yeah, to try and bring it into people's, um, you know, make it a little bit more fun uh, at, at the workplace to kind of have these conversations and educate your team about it. Um, so that that's still maybe someday we'll get around to that, but uh, or maybe we'll just have to like open source and let people print it at home. But the the notion of it is just taking these 20 or so properties and, and kind of getting your team educated on them and then ranking them through a, a sort of a gamified like voting process. Uh, it kind of like a battling of the the different properties to, to find which ones um, turn out to be the top three that your company should care the most about. And ranking them also, uh, I think I found is really helpful to people because then you can sort of prioritize the one, two, three and decide what makes the most sense, either for the project or for your company as a whole, depending on you know how complex what you're doing might be. I love that idea. And just to maybe add a, add a positive note to us sort of bemoaning the complexity of these questions, I, I will say that in going through you know any sort of research project around sustainability and packaging, every time something unravels into further complexity, it may seem discouraging but you know ultimately we find with ourselves or with our clients we're giving ourselves a really strong framework and foundation to make decisions with not just for the project we're working on but but in the future and um it's definitely leads to a a strong scaffolding to, to act on kind of beyond just that one packaging project are there any pieces of advice um that you find yourself coming back to all the time or misconceptions that people have that you find yourself correcting a lot or things that you wish you could just like tell everyone they would just know? (laughs) I guess like an easy sustainability win that's just black and white is don't offer rush shipping, you know, or if you do, Mm, that's interesting. Have your customers, you know, build in the the cost of carbon offsetting that, which you can do easily on Shopify. There are so many great tools for that. Explain, just give the, the 30 second version why. If you're shipping by air, you're going to have a much higher, like orders of magnitude, higher carbon footprint than freight shipping, whether it's, you know, boat, train or truck. And um, 
it's just not worth it. Very few things are that important that you need them the next day. And you can really cut down on the carbon footprint uh, that's associated with your brand if you aren't brush shipping. Or if you are, you can pay for mangroves or trees to be planted that will sequester the equivalent amount of carbon from that, you know, flight to deliver someone their t-shirt and uh, Shopify or, or if you're running a brand, whatever tool you're using to sell your product will we'll have tools that will, you know, allow you to easily integrate that. Yeah. Making it part of the story is also interesting if you can, like, um, tell people why. Yeah. <laughs> we don't offer rush shipping because, you know, <laughs> this is this is the impact. Or if you want to get rush shipping, you know, pay extra and we will we'll subsidize that on, on, on the back to, to make sure that uh, we sequester that carbon. Absolutely. It doesn't have to be a shaming customer journey. There can be a, you know, a positive, <laughs> a positive flow for it. One of them that I've been kind of on a, a crusade about is that there's this perception that sustainability has to be more costly. And I think that in some cases, it's definitely true. We talked about that early on when it comes to materials, things that haven't reached scale. But one of the most cost-effective things to do and and most companies are always trying to reduce their packaging costs is to remove components, reduce the amount of printing, reduce the amount of material that you're using. And reducing things is always, you know, reduce the overall volume in transit. All of those things are going to be both a cost win and a sustainability win. And, and that's one that people always forget. I fully agree. We haven't had one project that's ended up, been a redesign that's ended up with packaging that's um, more, more costly than the the prior iteration. And it comes down to exactly what you're saying, being thoughtful with volume, you know, slimming your package down as much as you can, being thoughtful with the number of components, being thoughtful with printing. And yeah, unless you're the one, you know, taking a, a novel material to scale, it, it really isn't more expensive. I think that the reason there's so much bad packaging design out there is it, it can be an afterthought and um, brands are so busy that they'll you know, just do it as quickly as they can right right before they need it. And if you plan well and, and give yourself time to design intelligent packaging, it's very possible to do cost effectively. Why do you think that association is so strong? I, I find that people have that kind of intertwined in a way that is hard to disassociate. They, they really think if it's sustainable, it has to be more costly. It's probably a fault of, you know, and even I'm, I'm guilty of this. I like sensationalize the novelty of new materials we're using on our Instagram because they're they're so fun and it's so fun and interesting to play with mushrooms and as as packaging material and that sort of thing and and design blogs or news will will do the same thing and there's this association that maybe through that and, and also through the types of brands that embrace sustainability, there's an association that, you know, sustainability is a luxury concern or, or, you know, something tied on to, to luxury products. And, uh, you know, really that's not true. Like I, you know, a, a good substitute for sustainability is just, you know, pragmatism or, or frugality, which are, which are values that if anything, they're the antithesis of a luxury product. And I think maybe this is what some of these properties can help people realize is that there's, there's a lot of subtlety. The word sustainability is such an all encompassing concept and I think, you know, maybe in your day to day, you're going to the grocery store and you see organic food next to non-organic food. And that probably makes sense as to why it might be more expensive. Um, you know, maybe 
whether it's animals or, you know, orchards or things like more space is needed, more care is taken, more, you know, the, the soil is better quality, certain things. In other cases, maybe you can actually, you know, the more sustainable, quote unquote, thing to do would be to go to a farmer's market or buy something local that might turn out to be a lot cheaper than buying, you know, organic produce that came from the other side of the country, for example. But that notion kind of penetrates in because you're like looking at an apple and another apple and they're sitting right next to each other on the shelf and one is more expensive than the other. I don't know. I think that contributes a little bit to it. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that, but I, I think that's a great point. Like our organic food is is probably one of the first touch points the average person has with, with sustainability and, and you know, that, that can permeate out. But I, I love what you're saying. There is a lot of nuance and it's probably up to us as designers to celebrate some of the more quiet sustainability wins in our projects that, you know, might, might be invisible to the average person. Yeah. And that's where like the challenges with something like explaining why compostability might be bad (laughs) is kind of like at the extreme level of like, okay, you're assuming that people are trying to do the right thing and they, you know, compostable sounds good, but you know, you're kind of like two steps removed now from a conversation that is like relatable. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I'm very lucky in the studio. Um, the other person who works with me full time is um, her name's Marissa Sanchez Dunning, and she does not come from a sustainability background. She uh, comes from a you know design agency background, and uh, it's very refreshing to see some of the more complex questions we're tackling through her eyes, and you know how how she'd talk about them with her family. And I, I really appreciate having the intelligence and beginner's mind of someone who isn't so deep in the weeds to to look over these questions as well. What's your vision for growing Guacamole Airplane? I love the work we're doing, work, working on uh, structural design and, and working on sustainability consulting. I'd love to expand our team and, and grow the size of the projects we're able to work on to really have an impact beyond just, you know, one individual brand and uh, ultimately see us with having, you know, a really great prototyping laboratory and, and good relationships with cutting edge manufacturers and, and really being the people that you know, any brand or business can go to, to take on interesting sustainability questions and and bring really high quality, sustainable packaging into the world. Can you talk a little bit about some of the clients that you've worked with and and like just a couple projects that come to mind that you've really enjoyed working on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think in our first year, the the big break was uh, working for Allbirds as well as working for yourself. Um, those were, were two different projects that kind of speak to the type of work we do. For you've mentioned the sustainability properties we were working on for Lumi. That was such a fun project because the impact was beyond just one brand. It became a tool that that so many brands could could integrate into their thinking and into their built work. For Allbirds, they hired us to take a look at their shoelace packaging. It was um, overpackaged, and uh, they wanted some some fresh ideas for for how to package it. And uh, it was more of a, a structural design process. And those two areas are, are where we've continued to work. Uh, a project we just released last month or was working with a brand called Hammerhead. They were they're, uh, they make bicycle computers, cycling computers that mount onto your mountain bike and. They'd been using kind of EPS foams for their packaging in their in their first version and wanted a, a really sleek, you know, kind of Apple quality 
unboxing experience, but also wanted to step away from, from using any type of plastic foams. And, uh, we were able to do it through, you know, a bunch of different concepts and die lines. We were able to pull off a, a great solution for them and then super happy with how that worked out. Also spent about five months working with the grocery store in the last year, looking at their thousands of SKUs for their private label brand and developing a comprehensive design guide and sustainability strategy. So for each of their new products that come to market, they have a, a really solid and easy to use template for design decisions around where to source materials, how to think about structure, inks and labeling and caps and closures that will ultimately lead to, you know, a really thoughtful aisles of a supermarket. I want to extend a challenge to uh, whoever's still listening to this podcast, <laughs> which is to um, send send me or uh, Lumi uh, questions on our Twitter. And I would love to, to have you back in to go into some myth busting and just Q&A on, you know, the details, the nitty gritty, like kind of do the 201 version of this. We could be answering lots more of people's questions if they have some kind of at that intersection of materials, sustainability, packaging, and get even deeper than we did this time around. But in the meantime, if people have um, projects that they want to work with you on, guacamoleairplane.com is your website. Again, leadme.com slash experts. If you're, if you're using Lumi and you, you want to work with Ian and his team, they're familiar with us, obviously, <laughs> and are use are, are can help you like design some really uh, awesome sustainable packaging. Anything else you want to point people to if they want to learn more about you? Check out our website, guacamoleairplane.com. We try to use our, our social media to share what we're learning along the way. So or you can follow us at guacamole.airplane on Instagram. And thank you so much, Stefan, for, for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was. Consider writing a short review, could be just a sentence long, by going to iTunes and searching for Well Made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks, and see you next time.